Welcome to the JIMD podcast, a podcast dedicated to all aspects of inherited metabolic disease. The podcasts are intended to serve as a complement to our journal articles, allowing authors to explain their work outside of the formality of printed content. And you can listen whilst you go for a walk, drive to work, or even just do the washing up. There are now over 100 episodes of the podcast, so be sure to have a listen, but not before this latest podcast asks and hopefully answers the question, food or medicine? Hello there. Now, as you know, I'm always happy when previous guests return to the podcast. And for two of today's guests, I think our last chat was all too brief as it was part of a compilation episode. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome back Nina Stolwick and Dr. Carla Hollock, and also to say hello to their colleague, Dr. Annette Bosch, who is joining us for the first time. All three work at Amsterdam UMC and Nina and Carla are part of the Medicine for Society group. And they've joined me to discuss their recent publication, Food or Medicine, a European regulatory perspective on nutritional therapy products to treat inborn errors of metabolism. Uh, Nina, Carla and Annette, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Happy to be back. <laughs> it's good to have you back. I mean, I think that everyone working in inherited metabolic disease recognises that there are a wide range of nutritional interventions. Um, and in many ways, we coined the idea of food as medicine well before the influences ever existed. These approaches might include dietary restriction, food supplements, vitamin therapies, and even supplemental oligosaccharides in some of the CDG. For the purposes of this paper and the podcast, what exactly are we talking about? You're absolutely right. Dietary management and addition of essential supplements are often the cornerstone of treatment in uh, inborn errors of metabolism. And the problem is that although they are essential, the oversight of what is available and the quality of the products and whether they will be reimbursed may be quite unclear. And that has everything to do with the fact that supplements and vitamins are not regarded as medicines. And also the terminology may be very difficult to understand. So Nina, perhaps you can also add here the terminology because that really can be very confusing. Yeah, so when we dove into this topic, one of the first points of contention that we found is that there's no global consensus on terminology when we're talking about these products. Different terms are used overseas in the US versus here in the European Union, and also some terms are used interchangeably. So for instance, dietary supplements is the term they use in the US, whereas in the EU here, we use food supplements. And for this paper, we decided to use the terms defined in EU law. And then you find that for food supplements, for medicinal products, and even for food for special medicinal purposes. So those are all categories that are defined by law. So there are legal definitions for such a product. But then for the products we're talking about today, so food-related products used in the treatment of inborn errors of metabolism, there's actually no legal term. And we use the umbrella term nutritional therapy products. That is not a legal term, firstly, but also not a term that every academic publication adheres to. So James, I can understand that it's already quite confusing, isn't it? But maybe, Annette, you can give a couple of examples. Yeah, I think it's an incredibly wide array of products that are used in the treatment of inborn errors of metabolism, not considered by many people to be any treatment, while it might be life-saving. Examples could be complex amino acid mixtures, leaving out one or two amino acids for the treatment of patients, for example, MPKU, MSUD, but also vitamins, simple single vitamins like 
riboflavin, pyridoxine, pyridoxal phosphate, but also even single amino acids, which are essential in the treatments of some of the arse deficiency, for example. So it's an incredibly wide array of products which are by most not considered of therapeutic relevance, I think. So it's quite a heterogeneous group, and I guess it's quite hard to regulate some of these items as they're literally sold as food supplements. I could pick one up in the supermarket today if I wanted to. How did you go about looking into the current state of regulation? So the first step for us there was uh, we consulted a legal expert who helped us navigate the regulatory landscape. And we started by looking at the relevant legislation at the EU level. And then we also looked at the implementation of those laws. And we did that by looking at case laws, so decisions surrounding this topic by the European Court of Justice, and then also relevant guidelines published by either the European Food Safety Authority, so the EFSA, or the European Medicines Agency, the EMA. And that gave us a general overview over what that regulatory framework looks like. So that's what you did. What did you find? Has the incredible bureaucracy of the EU got this all very tightly wrapped up? Uh, Well, in my opinion, unfortunately not. Uh, I think that the general food safety framework, as well as the medicine framework, functions really well. But we are talking about a very rare and specific subset of products where these overlapping definitions of food versus medicine does lead to some issues. The legislation that comes most closely is that of food for special medicinal products. I briefly touched on that before. So that's the law that governs products that are intended to feed patients that cannot metabolize certain nutrients. But the law is also very clear in that it's intended to only govern products that feed the patient and not that treat the underlying disease. And that brings us, I think, to one of the core issues here is that for metabolic disorders, that's a sliding scale. When are we talking about feeding a patient? When are we talking about actually treating the underlying disorder? So that is the core problem here, I think. And at what point do you think a food does become a medicine and can a medicine ever become a food? It feels like a really tricky spectrum to navigate. Yes, I think it is. Although the law is quite clear on when a product should be considered a medicine. So there are two key elements. It must either function as a medicine or it must be presented as a medicine. And then we know from looking at relevant case law that that should be interpreted restrictively. So Functioning as a medicine, that does mean there is a scientific evidence of that functioning and it should be a significant effect. But then the next step is how do we apply those laws? So when do we feel that a nutritional therapy product in the context of a specific inborn error of metabolism meets that criteria of functioning as a medicine? So I think that is one of the key questions that arose from this review and that we aim to answer We established a flowchart to make it more easy to systematically assess if a specific product in the context of a specific inborn error of metabolism, so a case-based approach, meets those criteria that were set out by the law, but also by the case law to dictate whether a product actually functions as a medicine. So for that, we're looking at the purpose of the product, what level of scientific evidence is there, what kind of dosing regimens are we looking at, are we looking at very superphysiological dosing? Is there a significant effect and also how closely should the product be monitored? Does it matter who it functions as a medicine for? Annette gave some wonderful examples around B vitamins. We've seen B vitamins used as therapy in a number of different conditions. I recently started a child on niacin for a mitochondrial disorder. For my patient, the niacin is medicine. But for me, if I were to take it, it would just give me expensive urine. Um, And there are lots of examples like that. Does it matter who it's a medicine for? 
Well, I think, yes, of course it is, because it's a medicine for someone who needs this as a medicine. I'm looking at the flow chart, and one of the questions is, is the active ingredient significantly modifying physiological function? If you would take it, it might not do it for you, but it, for a patient who is in need of it, it might. What we could do is talk one of the products through the flow chart. Take, for example, another B vitamin, B2 riboflavin. If you say, what's the purpose of the prescribed nutrient product, riboflavin, in a very high dose, the purpose is to bring it into the body so the patient with, for example, a riboflavin transporter deficiency gets enough riboflavin available for the metabolism in the cells. Then is there scientific evidence for this treatment in this person? Yes, in a person with riboflavin transporter deficiency, we know giving riboflavin is life-saving. Then the third question would be, is there a modification of physiological functioning? Definitely. Metabolism will be certainly affected in a riboflavin transporter deficiency patients by giving riboflavin. The dosing, is it supraphysiological? Yes, it is. It's more than 100 times the normal intake of riboflavin, which is way beyond any intake you would get from an over-the-counter supplement. And then is there a need for medical supervision and or clinical and or biochemical monitoring? Indeed, there is. You want to look at some biochemical parameters and you want to have a clinical evaluation. If you go through all that and the answer is yes to all of it, this product will align with functioning as medication. So who you prescribe it for is inherent part of that flowchart, I think. From a clinical perspective, you've identified a few issues. In fact, one of them came up the last time we spoke, and that's about ensuring a good quality product with consistent availability because the issue around some of the products that are available as food supplements is you don't know that you're actually going to get a good amount of the active compound within it which is that what's what you want to know about when you're giving things i don't know if that's something you wanted to expand on further and and how we sort that out from a regulatory perspective yeah indeed I think what we did is the first step so we looked into the legal framework we came up with a sort of algorithm, um, as Annette and Nina explained, what should be seen as a medicine rather than a food supplement. And with that framework, we can have a look at all the supplements that we are using and then make a decision on which of these supplements are really essential and should in fact be seen as medicine. So that will be the next step. And if we will see that, then we should also investigate further whether these supplements, these essential medicines, in fact, are sufficiently available and also in a sustainable way and at a good price and also being reimbursed. And I think there will be the next challenges for us if we can also find ways to make them available in a sustainable way for patients and avoid that they will be sort of picked up by pharmaceutical industry and brought back at a very high price, which is, I think, a risk that uh, we could face. 
Would you ever foresee a situation where you were trying to reduce availability? So if you've got the danger being that something is sold across multiple settings, you may be able to buy it from Amazon, for example. And the concern then is that people are finding a a less effective form of the medication or an unregulated form that is not produced to a pharmaceutical grade standard. In some ways, we don't just want to ensure there is good availability, but sometimes could there be too much availability or the wrong availability? Exactly. So what you need to have is a high quality product. So when we have this list of essential products, then of course you have to find a manufacturer that can make the product at high quality, the quality that we really want for our patients. And that is essential for our patients. But as Nina pointed out, the regulations are different for food supplements and for medicines. So what you want to have is that high level of evidence and also of quality that applies to medicine. And I think that is what we want to reach and then avoid that people have to order them over the counter with uncertain quality and also uncertain availability sometimes. And were there any other issues that came up in your analysis? Yeah, so one of the core issues I think Carla just touched upon, it is if we find that there is a justifiable need for a medicinal product, how do we realize that? So what are the regulatory requirements surrounding that, but also how do you finance that without resulting in a price of a product eventually that then may limit patient access. We're talking about extremely small patient populations. How do we find the pharmaceutical partners to work with? Those are some of the issues in realizing that. I think that goes back to what you said before, James, that we have had this talk about public-private partnerships and other ways to collaborate. I think we need pharmaceutical industry but we can collaborate with them in a different way. And I think very important that patients and physicians also play a more prominent part in development of these products to make them available as medicines and also for a good price, for a price that doesn't jeopardize access for patients. I think that's one of the main starting points also of Medicine for Society that we want to pursue that. And is there anything else that you think needs to be done differently when it comes to our attitudes towards these medicinal foods, as it were? Well, there's lots of patients with inborn errors of metabolism that do not have any treatment at this point. So I think there are also many substances and maybe also food supplements or vitamins that can have a place in the future for treatment. So if uh, we can explore those and immediately make them available along this pathway that has been uh, structured by Nina and her co-workers, and also start a collaboration with perhaps a commercial partner to bring it in a sustainable way to patients. I think that would be an enormous challenge, but also something that we are really eager to try to achieve. And just briefly kind of wrapping up with the work that Medicines for Society are doing, the framework that you've created and the pathway that you're talking about, is that something that can be easily applied in other healthcare settings you know, across the world? Well, of course, this framework refers to food supplements and vitamins, but I think it's the legislation can be a little bit different. But in essence, there are elements, I think, that will apply to other jurisdictions as well. So I think it can be very, very useful. And what we do is we work from small to bigger, so from case to system. So I think we are now exploring several of these food supplements and see if we can develop them along this framework to sustainable and accessible treatments. 
and publish about that, as you see. And then we hopefully can also influence the, the system solutions, not only in our country, but perhaps also in other countries. And I think when we're talking about system solutions, we've talked a, a bit about nutritional therapy products that perhaps should be available as medicines and how to realize that. I think another thing might also be to improve regulator awareness that this issue exists and also for products that maybe do not meet that threshold for functioning as medication and that function more as food, but can still be very important to the treatment of inborn errors of metabolism. For those treatments, the current safeguards for availability, for reimbursement may also not be sufficient. So perhaps there we also need to look at a system change, new regulations, new ways of safeguarding that more sustainable access for patients there. It's obviously a work in progress, but I'm very grateful for the work that you've already done. And it's a very interesting piece to read. And I hope people who are listening will go on to read your article, which they can do either by clicking the link in the podcast description or by going to our journal web pages and searching for food or medicine. Um, Nina, Carla and Annette, thank you very much for your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.